The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents The Monstrous Regiment, featuring a roundtable of Dominion women seeking to honor Jesus Christ in applying God's Word fearlessly and faithfully in all callings and seasons of life, both in and out of the home, reversing the curse and smashing pagan strongholds. two black eyes um and I apologize that it's been so long since our last episode we've been all very busy with projects and um, missions and reevaluating how to approach all of this um but we're still here and we're still committed to delivering you guys content um I want to open this by saying that I wrote this and discussed it with my co-hosts before any of us were aware of the current crisis or thinking about it with any seriousness or urgency. I worked on it very slowly for months and it was in no way influenced or informed by anything that is currently happening, nor did I edit or update it in any way to reflect more current events. Um, Any applicability is purely providential. Um, I will make a brief comment acknowledging this crisis at the end um, after delivering all of what I previously wrote completely unaltered. Um, Nevertheless, as you can probably already tell, I do approach recording this with an even heavier and more grieved heart than I had when I wrote it. Um, And it may be hard for me to deliver some portions in this renewed light, so please bear with me. I'm going to start with a passage from Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Um, And now I'm going to read an excerpt from a Christian, a professing Christian novel. In less than five minutes of screams, shrieks, and howls, it was all over. The floor ran deep with the bowels of cultural Marxism. This is from a novel called Victoria by William S. Lind in a scene depicting literal flesh and blood warfare on a college campus. The slaughter in question being performed by crusader-style knights singing Christian hymns. They are not the villains of the piece. They are led by the protagonists and this is the book's triumphal climax. So how do people professing belief in the latter passage from scripture work themselves around to extreme contradictions such as seen in the former excerpt? The topic of today's episode is what I believe to be the cause of this cognitive dissonance, tribalism, the tendency of humans to develop values determined by identification with and loyalty to a particular group, often but not always along racial, geographical, political, or social lines. I'm Elizabeth, and this is the Monstrous Regiment. While scripture tells us that we are fighting for the rescue of hearts, minds, and souls of those who, exactly like each of us, are in need of a divine savior, all too often the visible professing church takes an attitude of fighting against the very neighbors we are called to love as ourselves in the second greatest commandment. 
While hopefully few people would indulge in fantasies of such literal bloodlust as William Lind, it's not like that book is popular, thankfully, many, particularly among the audience of this podcast network, do accept the cultural Marxism conspiracy theory and dog whistle for the Jews that constitutes the novel's antagonist. And many do fantasize about a top-down government hierarchy that enforces their values, whether these are actual Christian values or the fetishized Western values, is often difficult to determine since many seem to regard them as synonyms and use them interchangeably, and executes consenting adults for sexual behaviors they find distasteful while all allowing or encouraging sexual practices they unaccountably seem to find more appealing, like arranged marriages um, with underage girls who are incapable of consent. And yes, I believe personal distaste is the real motivator for many that hold this evident double standard and a belief in a biblical prohibition just the excuse. Nor is this tendency limited to this corner of evangelicalism. Among dispensationalists, there are equally blood-chilling fantasies of the bloody destruction of fellow humans depicted in books like the far more popular Left Behind series. There is not a theological group that is free from at least a faction of those who others people outside their circle and dreams of their destruction, though not usually their literal bloody deaths. Um, an incidental side note at the writing of this the author of a similarly themed Christian doomsday books was currently a person of interest at the center of several real suspicious deaths and the unaccountable disappearance of his children. I don't, do not know what the update on that is at currently um, since the writing of this because um, other current events have overwhelmed um, the following of that story, but I do think it's worth noting. More commonly, the fantasy is of a culture war, one through the successful political domination and eventual political rule of our side. It's nothing new. It is the same inclination to trust in chariots that caused ancient Israel to demand a king despite God's warnings to the contrary, and later to reject the Messiah when he came preaching a message of subversive counterculture that would convert society through the Beatitudes and who stormed the religious temple rather than the gates of the Roman Empire. While the scripture I opened with is one we are all familiar with, it seems that often when it comes to consistent application, we get around the core principle by simply categorizing our flesh and blood ideological opponents or perceived opponents as the representatives of spiritual forces of darkness and proceeding to literally demonize flesh and blood perceived enemies. When we consider how we approach warlike or confrontational language as part of our religious vocabulary and practice, it is important to have a very clear idea in mind, not only of who or what we are fighting against, but who or what we are fighting for. We do not under, if we do not understand or keep ourselves deliberately conscious of our mission, our true enemy, and our true purpose, we will naturally be inclined to fall into the trap of othering the very people we are called to reach out to and dividing ourselves into us-against-them warring tribes of flesh-and-blood humans. Scripture is very clear and explicit about the mission of Christians on earth. It is accepted by pretty much every mainstream school of Christian thought. Evangelicals are even literally named after it. We have been rescued from a condition of despair, 
are to turn and allow ourselves to be used by God as a means to lift up our neighbors out of that same condition and then disciple them to do the same for their neighbors. We who love God because he first loved us and not by any merit in ourselves are to turn and love others. We are explicitly told that those others are not our enemy, but that our enemy is a deceiver who operates by trying to deceive us and those we are trying to engage with. We are explicitly and repeatedly told that we are in no way superior to anyone who doesn't believe what we believe. We are explicitly told that we are to combat not other people, but lofty ideas that raise themselves against the knowledge of God. Where we tend to get confused is that we don't think about the purpose or meaning implicit in that command. Why do we want to combat ideas that raise themselves against the knowledge of God? Why do people who have already been given the knowledge, or a God who is all-powerful and self-sustaining, even care if someone else has a counter-idea we already know isn't true? It's obviously not going to hurt him. It can't hurt us if our minds are sanctified and we are abiding in him. So, who is it going to hurt? The filthy, unwashed, heathen masses is who. If you miss the sarcasm and are grossed out by me referring to other image bearers of God over whom I have absolutely no right to claim any superiority in such a dehumanizing way, you're right to be. But even when it's not spelled out like that in so many words, and increasingly it is, that is how religious communities often default to thinking about other human beings that express ideas we believe to be contrary to the truth. We think of those peoples as enemies to us and our desired, desired world order. We talk constantly about them attacking us and our values as though they could somehow make our values less true by expressing opposing ones. Which, faithless as we so often are, is often what we do really fear. However, that attitude is getting everything just exactly the wrong way around. The people who believe a lie are no threat at all to people who believe the truth, not in any meaningful way. How is it even possible for people who have no cause to fear death to be afraid of ideas we already know aren't true? The ideas are not a threat to a faithful and abiding people. They are a threat to the people they have deceived. The very ones we are treating as enemies when the whole reason the idea, idea is our enemy is because it is hurting our neighbor. Yes, you might say, but even so, the ideas we allow to predominate are the ones that will determine when the society we, what the society we live in looks like, and that's true. The society we live in now does not reflect the kingdom of God. It is rife with hatred, ignorance, prejudice of every stripe, poverty, greed, every kind of abuse, racial discord, and sexual distress. Isaiah 1, traditionally titled The Rebellion of God's People, describes our society pretty accurately. And please keep that title in mind because your instinct may be to think of some other while listening. The government or the cultural Marxist agenda that definitely exists and definitely is not a racist dog whistle for the Jews or ruining everything and is totally not a term literally pioneered by actual literal Nazis. But Isaiah is talking to you and to me, to the religious representatives of God on earth, to the people who have been graced without deserving it more than anything anyone else with special revelation and told to set an example of righteousness to those around them. Here is what God said, has said to his own people in this chapter. Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks, sons I have reared and brought up. 
He's talking about his own children, not the world. But they have revolted against me. An ox knows its owner, and a donkey its master's manger. But Israel, or insert the church, does not know. My people do not understand. My people do not understand. Alas, sinful nation, again, insert the church, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly. They have abandoned the Lord, not rejected, abandoned. People who knew the Lord abandoned him. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from him. Where will you be stricken again as you continue in your rebellion? The whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is nothing sound in it, only bruises, welts, and raw wounds, not pressed out or bandaged, nor softened with oil. Your land is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Your fields, strangers are devouring them in your presence. It is a desolation as overthrown by strangers. It's important to note here that one, he's blaming his people for this. The modern equivalent would be the church since we don't have a religious nation state ruled by priests not the strangers. And two, this is not to be applied by us as an issue of racial or national foreignness or strangeness, but of practices foreign to the nature and commands of God to his people. And no, not only or even primarily the ones you are probably used to thinking of or hearing railed against, which, when they are the actual violations of scripture at all, and not just of human tradition, are typically the fruits of the real corruptions rather than the causes, which continue unexamined or more often embraced and approved, as we can see in the metaphor Isaiah uses here. Verse 8. The daughter of Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a watchman's hut in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. Unless the Lord of hosts had left a few survivors, we would be like Sodom. We would be like Gomorrah. Um, here, before verse 10, the translators have helpfully added the section title, God has had enough. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom i.e. you arrogant people with abundant food and careless ease who don't help the poor and needy, which was the sin of Sodom. Give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, said the Lord? Again, he's talking to his people. The um, unbelievers, those outside of his children, didn't make sacrifices to him. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle, I've had, you know, enough of your conferences, your rallies, your marches, your Sunday mornings and your Wednesday nights, your purity rings and your pure flicks. And I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires this of you, this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings to me. No longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity in the solemn assembly among his own people gathering together to worship him. He cannot endure the iniquity that's among them. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered in blood. And no, this can't be isolated to only one pet evil where we admit our hands are covered in blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of deeds from my sight, cease to do evil, learn to do good, 
seek justice and yes, justice in society. Reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. Let us reason. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are like crimson, they will be like wool. If you consent and obey, still talking to the church, you will eat the best of the land, but if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword, still talking to the church. Truly the mouth of the Lord has spoken. How the faithful city, the church, has become a harlot. She who was full of justice, still the church when applied to us, not some imaginary Christian nation. Righteousness once lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross, your drink diluted with water, because the only wine God likes is the kind, good, strong, alcoholic kind. Your rulers, your priests, pastors, ministers, theologians, apologists, as well as the politicians you choose to represent you politically, are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and chases after rewards, still talking about the church. They do not defend the orphan, nor does the widow's plea come before them. Therefore, the Lord God of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, declares, I will be relieved of my adversaries and avenge myself on my foes, talking about you and me, the church. I will also turn my hand against you and will smelt away your drosses with lye and remove all your alloy. Then I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. After that, you will be called a city of righteousness, a faithful city called that from without, that unchurched will recognize a righteous church as a wise and understanding people. So, you know, being universally despised for racism, slavery, apology, rampant sexual abuse, misogyny, greed, and corruption is not a mark in our favor that we are just being persecuted for those, by those bad, dirty heathens for our bold stand for truth. Zion will be redeemed in ju with justice in society and her repentant ones with righteousness. But transgressors and sinners, still talking about within the church, will be crushed together and those who forsake the Lord will come to an end. Surely you will be shamed of the oaks you have desired and you will be embarrassed at the gardens which you have chosen. For you will be like an oak whose leaf fades away or as a garden that has no water. The strong man will become tender, his work also a spark. Thus they shall burn, both burn together, and there will be none to quench them. This is just an example, one example. It would take me hours to go through every time scripture, both Old and New Testament, hold the people of God, and specifically their injustice toward the vulnerable, responsible for corruption in society. Sexual immorality and other forms of depravity in society are typically mentioned secondarily and described as a result of the oppression and idolatry by the people of God. Not only in the Old Testament, where the ruling class, religious class, was also the actual ruling class, which in some ways it arguably still is in Western society, even though we have embraced a narrative of persecution because school children get to practice religious freedom or because they make fun of us on television sometimes or we don't get to pretend our preferred icons represent the whole community without actually converting them so that they actually do represent them. The New Testament, where Israel was ruled by pagan colonizers, also describes a lack of salt and light among the church as the cause of social corruption. 
It's hammered home again and again that when common grace is thin on the ground, it is due to the corruption among those who have received special grace and, well, hidden it under a bushel. It's a simple concept. If people act like they are unconverted, it is because no one has converted them, which is our one job. Because the example of the predominant visible set of institutions self-identifying as the church has set for them has not been one that any sane or moral, moral person wants to follow. This is why the long-awaited Messiah, instead of storming the gates of Caesar, only showed anything resembling violence when he overturned the, overturned the symbols of corruption, greed, false teaching, and oppression within. And this is important because when I say said false teaching, you may have thought of Joel Austin or Joyce Meyer, but it was within the Orthodox temple. The false teachers that he bothered with antagonizing were the doctrinally precise religious elite Pharisees, the gnat strainers. There is chapter after chapter after chapter of the prophets and the apostles and Jesus himself railing against evildoers, and they are always aimed at the people of God. Never is the diatribe against those outside who Paul says he has no business in judging. The enemy is us. Now, I understand why that may have made you flinch or feel reactive. You see, if you were like me, you have been raised or discipled in a sort of default and unquestioned defensive posture. Many of us are used to regarding ourselves as something of a persecuted class. After all, Christians and other religions are currently legitimately persecuted in totalitarian states, and it's reasonable to sort of interpret trends in government and media as a more subtle form of persecution against us, right? We in the U.S. are, after all, becoming more of a totalitarian state every day, including under the enthusiastic leadership of the man we enthusiastically elected. Despite overwhelming degeneracy in every area of business and life, to represent what the religious right seems to define as Christian values. However, if we weren't so isolationist and insulated, we might, be more, we might be more aware of the fact that many people with opposing views do not feel any more well represented by the state or media than we do. The reality is that if we actually believe in a free market economy and in a representative government as most conservatives claim to, we have to regard any trends we see in culture and state as reflective of what politicians and content creators think that most people want. Everyone who has something to sell us is trying to sell it to the greatest number of people possible, and that still includes the religious right as an important demographic that they want to appeal to. The fact that we are not the only voice being appealed to and that the interests of other demographics are also represented, usually in a way that many of them find equally unsatisfactory, doesn't mean there is an orchestrated agenda of people out to get us. Listen again, of people out to get us. Do you see what we've done? We've replaced the spiritual conspiracy against us and against everyone else as well with a preoccupation with human conspiracies as though God could be troubled or thwarted by the petty machinations of jumped up men meeting in dark corners and instead of referring to our spiritual enemy as the explanation for the sense of spiritual warfare we are aware of, we create instead grand conspiracies on the part of powerful humans who are calculatedly scheming against us. Now, even if we grant that these conspiracies are real and ignore the strong component of racial prejudice inherent to most of them, do you see the shift that happens when we give them weight and turn them into the enemy we have to fight? 
Something instantly happens which fundamentally reorients us in regard to foundational principles of our faith. Firstly, we become immediately positioned toward every single person who believes differently than us as a conspirator against us who is out to destroy us. Rather than all humans being regarded as the targets of spiritual forces who want to destroy all of us. And the debate against amongst us all, a matter of what the source of that evil is and how to best resist it, with the truths of God by which all of creation is sustained and redeemed, regarded as the great hope that must be guarded and protected, human groups are assigned those qualities. And then, and this is where it gets really bad, everything associated with those human groups gets assigned the label of either darkness or light. When we become faithless and materialist and therefore dissatisfied with the intangible seeming nature of a spiritual war and assign the spiritual properties to particular human teams, the fight stops being pure and truly ideological, or at least the ideology stops being a biblical one. We are not fighting for the ideas anymore. We are fighting for the team. We are not fighting against other ideas anymore. We are fighting against the other team. If the in-group calls ourselves biblical or Christian, then anything we identify with, even if it's just a cultural norm that makes us feel more comfortable and nothing that can actually be found in scripture, even if it's the precise opposite of things commanded in scripture, it all gets assigned as biblical. And if the out-group is labeled as anti-biblical or anti-Christian or culturally Marxist or <gasps> liberal, a really good word, Anything the, the outgroup believes or advocates for becomes anti-Christian and is a direct attack on us. That is how we end up with relig the religious right becoming aligned with white nationalism, slavery, apology, rape apology, abuse apology, patriarchy, and all manner of power religion. Because while many of us technically affirm that racism, sexism, sort of, and the abuses of the vulnerable are wrong and anti-Christ behaviors, we are convinced that the other team is only against those things as part of a cultural Marxist agenda to take us down. So we have to be against whatever they are for, or else we are being indoctrinated by the agenda. The war for truth gets reduced to a war to not feel gullible or made to look foolish. We can't side with the Samaritans about anything because the Samaritans are bad and anything good they seem to be saying is just a trick to make us vote wrong and bring down society. This is how we get an unrepentant adulterer, pornographer, sexual sadist, xenophobic, ignorant, hate-mongering, narcissistic bully in the White House, lauded by professing Christ followers as the savior of their values. Because he is seen as a vehicle for implementing desired policies, and our Christian witness be literally damned. This is how we end up supporting the legislation written and campaigned for by known misogynists in service of an imagined greater good, having traded a commission for conversion and discipleship for the material weapons of legal force. This is how we end up making public common cause with neo-Nazis in service of protecting our own legitimate human rights, or even in some cases of service in, of Christian, in service of Christian missions, instead of working for those things in a way that draws a clear demarcation between ourselves and the interests of those who would oppress or unrighteously exclude others, even to the point of joining in gleeful and racially charged actual war cries. This is how the terms right and left have become almost universally synonymous with the terms good and evil, or vice versa, depending on your worldview or at least with lesser evil and evil. 
when the reality is that the corruption, exploitation, and oppression are at least as great on our side of the aisle, and that is compounded by the blasphemy of associating those traditions tightly with the name of God and by the shame that doing so brings to his church. We have said, at least it's better to have our own tyrant representing our own preferences and interests and have called those interests biblical, even when they are explicitly the opposite. And we have given no thought to the tangible harm this brings to others or what it communicates to them about the nature and priorities of the God we claim to worship. Light can have no fellowship with darkness is a statement of reality more than a command. It is not, if someone out there thinks racism is bad and they think government dictated and enforced wealth distribution is good, fighting racism must be darkness and defending it must be light. It is, racism can have no fellowship with truth and justice. If you were in a building with a cross on it and you were defending racial oppression in the name of economic freedom as though racial reconciliation can only be implemented or expressed at the point of a sword, guess if you were fellowshipping with darkness or light. That cross on the steeple just makes you a blasphemer. We've spiritualized a flesh and blood tribal war instead of waging spiritual war for the preservation of our flesh and blood neighbors who we are called to love. We've assigned the label darkness to one political camp and assigned the label light to another and declared that there shall be no fellowship between them. And the result is that we will have fellowship with racial oppression, gender oppression, the oppression of the poor and of the orphan, of the foreigner and of the slave, rather than having any fellowship with others who stand against such things, rather than standing with them in principle where their principles are correct and using persuasion and example to demonstrate where their methods of implementation have failings or are self-contradictory or self-defeating. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. 1 Corinthians 10, 3-5 While we are not to set ourselves against other teams in the flesh, it is certainly true we are to set ourselves against speculations raised against the knowledge of God wherever they are to be found. This is what many who end up engaging in tribalism are sincerely attempting to do. The problem arises in how we discern and define lofty speculations and in who we set as gatekeepers for making those judgments on our behalf. When we define these lofty speculations as those ideas we associate with the other team and use scriptural proof texting to justify the positions we feel comfortable with or which justify our tribal loyalty, rather than starting from scripture and allowing it to be our filter for truth, regardless from whom we are hearing it, we end up creating our own religion, our own system that only appeals superficially to the teachings of Christ, while in many ways actually completely defying them in spirit and in truth. In our culture today, this is evidenced by an elevation of Western traditions and customs to a set of Western values, which, we are, thought, which are thought of as nearly interchangeable with Christian values, to the extent that relatively modern and very specific modes of dress, including hairstyles, are regarded as somehow biblical, though no ancient Jew ever wore a pair of khakis or a denim skirt. This is confusing cultural norms, moral conventions, and Western values with religious moral truths, and using them interchangeably. Our religion comes from the East, and our deity took on human form as a Middle Eastern man. 
Some of these so-called traditional values do correspond with the objective morality, but often the reasoning and justification appealed to for even those relies more on proof-texted power religion than on the full counsel of scripture, and therefore even the correct actions are taken for the wrong reasons. Only the outside of the cup is clean. In many other instances, there are no scriptural justification at all, and indeed there is no real foundational opposing worldview, but rather an opposing side of the same worldview we claim to combat is embraced. Such as when we agree that gender is defined by an arbitrary set of socially prescribed external behaviors, but merely insist that the errant spirit be forced into conformity rather than the body. Until we actually take an opposing worldview, one that subverts power religion with servanthood and tyranny with love instead of fighting for our own preferred brand of tyranny, and stop embracing an opposing side of the exact same worldview we claim to be at war with, we will be forever locked in a meaningless and hostile cultural war against a flesh and blood enemy when we could be almost effortlessly triumphing over spiritual principalities. This substitution of tribal loyalty for religious conviction, or rather this substitution of idolatry to a tribe for devotion to the Christian religion, this loyalty to a Western tradition which is substituted for the gospel at best, does great damage to our Christian witness and often devolves into a false gospel and outright blasphemy. We need to keep clearly in mind that creating a society we feel comfortable in and which reflects our preferences is not the goal. Reflecting the kingdom of God, who is not willing that any should perish, is the goal. When we work from the assumption that the glory of God is not declared openly by all creation, and that his truths have not been made evident to all, when we assume an elitist special access to self-evident truths inherent to creation, we become snobs, unwilling to learn from anyone outside our exclusive set, forgetting that Jesus said if, if his disciples were silent, even the rocks would cry out. And who was it that wanted his followers to be silent? Why, the religious Pharisees, of course, the gatekeepers of orthodoxy. We must remember that we are the recipients of special grace, not special knowledge. How can we preach that God has placed his law in every heart and then deny such law low-hanging fruit as all image bearers ought to be treated with equal dignity simply because of the tribal affiliation of the person saying it? We become like the workers in the vineyard, unwilling that anyone but us should be able to see or hear the most self-evident truths apparent in the very fabric of creation because we got here first, so it doesn't come from so if it doesn't come from us, it can't come from anyone. What a stingy and heartless approach to the gospel, and what a terrible abuse and misunderstanding of the entire concept of presuppositional apologetics. As though it was a gotcha script to corner people who were not fooled when really the whole foundation is empathy, acknowledging with, a, our, uh, with our fellow creations the bedrock upon which we both stand as a starting point to working through how everything else falls into place around it, like solving a Sudoku. And here we so often smugly stand, denying that the given numeral in row three can be true because we weren't the ones to find it. We must be truth seekers and must each individually, without reliance on spiritual gatekeepers, but using the wisdom of those who have gone before us as building blocks, not final limitations, stand for and embrace truth wherever we find it. Using sola scriptura, not tradition, as our filter, with absolutely no concern for protecting a brand and absolutely no regard for strategizing against conspiracies, real or imagined. This is exactly what is meant when God promises to use the foolish things to shame the wise.
Of course, this does not mean we have to or ought to refuse to ever see malevolence in any human person. We are not obligated to be easily gaslit. Indeed, we are told repeatedly in Scripture to discern false teachers and deceivers who would come among us to deceive us. Being innocent as doves does not mean refusing to be wise as serpents. It is simply the criteria we are often using to determine this that needs to be recalibrated. Teen colors don't indicate deceivers and abusers. Behaviors do. It can feel tricky to discern the difference between someone who is sincerely deceived and someone who is willfully deceiving others, but it usually reveals itself pretty easily as soon as you begin to engage in good faith with someone. We do not have to and are not entitled to read someone's heart or mind in order to, to determine whether to treat someone as a wolf or as a lamb. Simply read their actions. Wolves prey on others. If a person or institution is preying on the vulnerable or unrepentantly benefiting from such, with no attempt at redress even after having that revealed to them, they are behaving as a wolf and should be treated in the way scripture describes for such people. This does not require that they have a self-consciously malevolent desire to harm others, simply a willingness to harm them and a refusal to stop harming them for whatever reason. We do not need to make any judgments about the motivations of anyone's heart. We can hope and pray the best for them and know we are doing the most loving thing for them by refusing to tolerate their actions and by protecting the vulnerable from them. This is a completely different standard from treating everyone who believes something contrary to what we believe as an enemy and a fiend, and it allows us to adapt, uh, adopt the heart of our shepherd towards his precious lambs while not enabling those who seek to devour them, regardless of the team affiliation of each. Of course, this also doesn't mean that as individuals we can't personally choose who we wish to associate with, interact with, or trust without taking it upon ourselves to put them in one of these two categories. We can simply not really like someone or not personally regard them as very sincere without believing that they are necessarily some kind of vicious wolf out to harm others. And we can each allow our spirit-led conscience to be our guide on how to conduct our interpersonal relationships or interactions with people. For our purposes on this topic, I'm just talking about how to reorganize our priorities in regard to how we categorize someone as an enemy and how we choose to love them without enabling them to harm others, recognizing that ultimately they are not our real enemy, but also that we are commanded in scripture to protect the vulnerable, not to enable the powerful out of a misguided sense of charity. In short, there is a division that must be acknowledged, but the division is not between the lost and found sheep, it is between the sheep and the wolves. Like our shepherd, we should want to rescue the lost sheep from the wolves, not accept the wolves wearing our colors and reject those sheep wearing theirs. In fact, not only do we still need to acknowledge dividing lines, we also do still need a tribe to belong to. The Bible speaks of community and fellowship among those with like minds and shared goals. It elevates friendship, marriage, family, and community with others as valuable and necessary. The problem is not in having tight-knit circles of shared ideals and affections. The problem is when those circles are inward-facing and exclusionary, when they become a self-justifying end in themselves rather than being in service of truths outside of themselves, when the created thing is worshipped rather than the creator, and when other communities or tribes become the enemy, the demonized other. Uh, Communities or tribes need to be centered around a shared devotion to seeking truth. Many begin this way, but if you are lazy about allowing external signifiers to indicate membership and about allowing gatekeepers to define your beliefs for you, 
they devolve into loyalty to the tribe rather than a shared loyalty among the tribe to the truth. One is grouped to think, the other challenges, adapts, grows. One buries a talent in the ground, the other invests it to produce more and more. One is a fellowship in the grand Tolkien sense, the other a grubby, secretive, arcane, self-aggrandizing cult that exists to justify its own exclusivity. In conclusion, there is an us and there is a them, but we have been in the habit of defining those categories according to unbiblical and often hateful criteria and confusing our mission toward other image bearers as one of warfare instead of one of adoption. The us, which should be the sincere truth seekers, the pilgrims, whatever their progress. The them should be the willful deceivers and exploiters. We are to regard those pilgrims currently outside our worldview as a mission field, not an enemy. Though unfortunately, even the term mission field has become uh, has begun to feel condescending with connotations of noblesse oblige. We are not dispensing pennies of wisdom to the huddled masses. We are inviting those who are just like us to join the family to which we are no more entitled to be members than they. Let's make it a family that actually reflects our father, a family anyone would actually want to join. This means consistent empathy, kindness, and respect, not just in areas we have a personal empathy toward. This means graciousness seasoned with salt when engaging those outside of our worldview, not just twisting that verse to chill or silence all dissent among the rank and file. Whatever the beliefs of another person or group, we do share within this little literal ground in common, the physical and philosophical realities of our existence, the human nature we share in the image of God and the corruption of it we all share in the fall, the desperate need for a redemption that we cannot secure for ourselves. The Bible says that the religious elite will hate us because of Christ. It says that the politically powerful will hate us because of him. Those who with followers to lose will hate us because of him. It also says that the general population will recognize God's followers as a wise and understanding people and will know us by our love. They will know us by our love, which means that it will be an expression of love that they can recognize and understand and respond to. No hiding behind the truth that love isn't always nice and comfortable to explain why we are primarily known for being hateful. And none of this culty and simpering, dear brother, dear sister, sweetness either. They will, from the outside, see and recognize this is a wise and understanding and loving people. So no taking comfort in, but they are supposed to hate us and misunderstand us. We are supposed to be different. We are not supposed to be different because we wear different uniforms. Not because our women are subservient, our men belligerent, and our children timid. Not because we don't own TVs or because we court our romantic partners instead of dating them, or because we take pride in being ignorant about current events or popular culture in the world, but not of it. We are supposed to be set apart by our wisdom and love, a wisdom and love that does not come from us, but which is demonstrated through us. We are supposed to be servant leading by doing the right thing, not by attaining top-down political or social power by any means necessary with a vague intention of eventually serving through force. And yes, we are also to do the right thing by not joining in doing the wrong thing, but we are defining random arbitrary external virtue signals as the set-apart right thing, not actual truth and justice. 
when we set ourselves apart by deciding that one gender wears only pants and the other only skirts, that is a corruption of the command. When we set ourselves apart by promoting, defending, or tolerating injustice and oppression, that is actual blasphemy. Um, that's the end of my, my original script. Um, I did consider adding a little bit to this at the end to reflect the current situation we are facing in the midst of a global pandemic and accompanying economic crisis, and to address on a personal level the way that I have personally alienated some of you whom I do love in my response to it. But it just didn't feel right to add anything to this. I think what I've said here stands on its own, and I do trust all of you to assess the substance of the message, however frustrated you may currently feel with the messenger. Just as I have been trusting you all along as siblings in the Lord and as mature, thoughtful disciples of him to be able to take a punch in the arm from me as a sister without malice. I lock horns with people I admire and trust to be able to handle it, and I save my eggshell walking for those I see as vulnerable. I don't pretend to believe that I have mastered a perfect balance in this, but I trust you as my siblings to appreciate my loyal opposition, even when you see it as incredibly misguided or wrongly expressed. And I trust that we can all come out the other side as family. So what all I will say about this current crisis and how all that I have said in this episode is applicable to it is do not do evil that good may come. Do the next right thing and trust in the Lord to strategize about the results. I love you all. Please stay safe. Thank you for listening to The Monstrous Regiment. We hope this podcast inspires and equips you to go and exercise dominion for Christ's kingdom. Terrible as an army with banners. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows. Or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom.